0: Just uh, keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm continuing my series through 1 Corinthians, and we've been in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, and chapter 4, and we've looked at different subjects that the Apostle Paul addresses. I've got to tell you, this subject this morning is not an easy one to preach. This is one of those chapters that you wish you could avoid altogether, and you could just go over it and you could say, forget it. I don't want to talk about it because it's just so, so... It's just so uncomfortable at times. It's just so controversial what we're going to be talking about. But it's right there in the Bible, and we're doing a study through First Corinthians. And so now we're in chapter 5, and we're going to be talking about how to confront individuals or people that are caught in some sort of willful sin in their life. And what do we do, and what, do we, what don't we do, and those kinds of things. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking this morning that you'd help me to share your word, and you'd help me to preach it, and make it applicable to our lives. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. If you've ever watched television, we've all watched television, even if you just watch the evening news, if you ever read a newspaper, if you ever look at a magazine, a secular magazine, you have to admit that there's all kinds of advertisements, there's all kinds of advertisements that are being bombarded against us all the time, and some of the advertisements are actually better than the programs we're watching. They're more entertaining, especially Super Bowl Sunday. How many of you remember a few years ago, one of those Super Bowl commercials? Those of you who watch the Super Bowl, some of you don't. But let me tell you, this was a humorous one to me. But all of a sudden, you see a cheetah, the fastest land animal in the world. And there is a fellow who catches up to the cheetah, tackles him, reaches in his throat, and pulls out, of all things, a Mountain Dew. The other one that I remember is a man who is running through the jungle and there is a lion behind him. He's running for his life and he comes to a, a huge cliff, a thousand foot drop, and he can't go left, he can't go right, he can't go in front of him. A ferocious lion is behind him when all of a sudden, Snoopy, the doodle dog, Swoops in on a jungle vine, dressed like Tarzan, and rescues the man. And the MetLife commercial says, "They'll go to any length to take care of you." <laughs> on a serious note, you know, commercials, commercials are very, very powerful. The media and movies can and often do exercise influence. And over over how our society thinks and reacts, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, A number of years ago, there was a young man who was indicted and later found guilty for murdering someone, murdering someone. And when he was found guilty, and and during the uh, he he pleaded guilty during the trial, they were they asked him. He said, "Why would you do that? Why would you kill someone in cold blood, not even knowing who they were?" And this is how he responded. He said, I got the idea from a Hollywood movie, Natural Born Killers. He said, I, know, I wanted to know what it would be like to take someone's life and to watch them die. You can't tell me that our culture and society doesn't have an influence in advertising and media, movie industry, over uh, areas of our life, and, and I find this, area, this, this to be true in the area of relationships, in the area of relationships. The message often comes packaged to us one way or another, but the underlying things are pretty consistent. The media tells us this, they tell, tell us this, if we are in a relationship with someone, and if we are experiencing some kind of friendship, you don't even have to have romantic love, some sort of friendship, and romantic love is thrown in there sometimes, whether or not they're single, married to someone else of the same sex, even if they're a relative, it's okay to have some sort of sexual relationships with them. Because, after all, we have this sexual drive, and it's important to be able to fulfill that drive that we have. That's the message. It comes loud and clear in our world today, and it comes over and over and over again. So no matter what the situation premarital, extramarital, same-sex, even incestuous relationships it's OK if circumstances warrant it. And this is what our culture tells us, but this is not. this is not biblical truth. As biblical Christians, as biblical Christians, when someone falls into some sort of sin, willful sin, whatever the sin is, especially if it's along these lines of sexual sin, what are we to do? How are we to respond as a church? Well, in First Corinthians chapter five, I want you to again to turn there with me. And as I said, we've been doing a series of messages through First Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let me just give you the background. The Apostle Paul had visited Corinth. He had visited Corinth. And we're talking about modern-day Greece today. And while he was there for 18 months, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many Orthodox Jewish believers and many so-called Gentile believers of pagan background came to faith in Jesus Christ. During these 18 months, these were happy, fulfilling days for the Apostle Paul. But as soon as Paul left, the church began to experience problems. They began to have relationships problems with one another. We've talked about that. They began to have relationship problems with their pastoral leadership. They began to have uh, abuse, uh, some sort of uh, spiritual gift abuses that we'll read later on. And they also began to uh, have problems with wrong sexual practices. Now, it should not surprise us. It should not surprise us. The reason why is, is that Corinth was a city of 200,000 free men and about 500,000 plus slaves. And in this city of almost one million people, there were two dozen pagan temples and, and gods worship. Apollos, Poseidon, Athena, Hermes, and then there was, a, the, Greek, uh, there was the famous Greek temple, to the goddess Aphrodite. In Corinth alone, at this temple, they had over 1,000 temple prostitutes, both men and women. In fact, according to an ancient Greek writer and a a geographer called Strobo, who visited Corinth in 29 BC, uh, 50-60 years before Paul was there, he said that every single kind of sexual encounter could be had in Corinth. He wrote, quote, that Corinth was a city preoccupied with sex. An understatement. So it shouldn't surprise us that one form of this problem showed up in the Corinthian church. Look at the problem, chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife. Now, do you understand here? Here is a member of the Corinthian church, a person that has professed faith in Jesus Christ. They're not an unchurched person. They're not an unsaved person. They are a saved person. They're a member of the Corinthian church. And they are living or having sexual relations. Many biblical scholars, most biblical scholars, believe it wasn't his actual blood Mother, but it was a stepmother. He was having sexual relations with his stepmother on a regular basis. Something, according to Apostle Paul, that should have riled him up, should have shocked him, because not even the pagan culture of that day accepted this kind of practice. You understand? Not even the unsaved in that city, accepted this kind of practice. Look at verse 2 with me. And he says, And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put this fellow out of your fellowship, the man who did this? The Corinthian church, Paul says, it's wrong in the first place that this man is doing this, but here you are, Instead of understanding how wrong it is, you're actually crowing, my words, crowing like a peacock. There's a peacock crow, claw? uh, crowing like a banny rooster. Crowing like a banny rooster. You're, you're proud of the fact, you're taking pride in the fact that this man is actually involved in this wrong sexual relationship with his stepmother. You're saying it's wonderful, it's great. And they're probably saying something like, isn't it wonderful that they could find one another? Isn't it wonderful that they could keep the same love and the same family with one another? We don't know where her husband is at. We don't know where this man's father is at. He could still be part of the picture. We don't know. But it's obvious that they are in a wrong relationship. Sexually speaking, they should not be doing this. And shocked as he was by the sin... Again, Paul is even more shocked by the Corinthian attitude toward the man and the woman. He said, did you see that in verse 2? Look at it with me one more time. He says, and you're proud, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? That word that he uses in the original language is pentium. And it's the word used for, for, for mourning for the dead. Mourning for the dead. To Paul, it was such a major loss. It was such a major blow that it was like losing a, a brother to death. Literal, physical death. He was so upset about it. Now, this is where we're at in the 21st century, why can't you live and let live? Why can't you just let it go? Why does the church why should the church respond to something like this? After all, who is it really hurting? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible to lovingly talk to someone who's involved in some sort of willful sin, be it sexual sin or other kinds of sin? Is it really my responsibility to do that? You see, uh, when a Christian brother or sister, be it sexual sin or other willful sin, they're professing Christians They're not unsaved, professing Christians. They're not just church attenders. They're a member of the church. When they get involved in some sort of willful sin, the church cannot, cannot be flippant, cannot make light of it, nor should we be angry at them, letting them have it with both barrels, or just spreading gossip, about these individuals and people. Have you heard the latest? Oh my, yeah, they're doing this and they're doing that. They're really. The first response, according to Paul, is to grieve. To grieve. To cry. To weep. To feel the loss. That's my brother. That's my sister. They're in broken fellowship. They're heading down the path of destruction. They're doing something that they should not be doing. You say, Pastor Ron, isn't all sin the same as other sins? Isn't all sin the same? When it comes to sexual sin, It's put in a different category. Did you hear what I said? It's put in a different category. I want you to flip ahead to chapter 6, chapter 6, and I want you to look at verse 18 with me. Chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says, if you're there, chapter 6, verse 18, he says, Flee, flee, and that means run away from. As quick as possible, get out of there. We read in the Old Testament that when Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, he, he was a streaker. He got out of there. It means flee, get out of there. It says flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you from whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Paul says, get away from it. Flee it. Flee from it. You see, sexual immorality is not like any other sin. He says, these other sins are outside of your body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. What are you talking about, Pastor Ron? Put it where I can understand it. Well, the only way I can say this is that the sexual drive is so strong and those urges are so strong that often if you do not control those sexual urges and if you do not control them in a means which God wants you to control them in a marital relationship, if you have sex outside of those bonds you are risking all kinds of things unwanted pregnancies sexually transmitted diseases deviant sexual behavior because I give into it and I give into it and I give into it and all of a sudden I'm, I'm addicted to something that I didn't know I was setting out to be addicted to and it can lead to separation, breathing, quenching of God's Spirit, and a movement away from God and His favor on your behalf. I, I don't know if I've ever shared this story. I think I may have shared it one other time a couple of years ago. I'm not, sh- I'm not positive. But I am acquainted with a young man, a young man with little or no sexual experience, so to speak, who grew up in a Christian home, who started down the pathway of soft pornography and then hardcore pornography. And he ended up in the San Francisco Bay Area with a prostitute overnight. Early the next morning, he got up. And she had written the prostitute on the mirror, I have AIDS, I hope you get it too. You're talking about a strong urge, a strong drive, and you cannot play around with sexual immorality. We're going to be talking about that in just a moment. That's why Paul goes on. Let's go on here. Let's, let's look at ch- uh, chapter 7, verse 2. That's why Paul goes on. Look, look at chapter 7, verse 2. We're going to get back to where we started out, but we, we're going down a rabbit trail, so to speak. Uh, chapter 7, verse 2. But since there is so much immorality, notice, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Drop down to verses 8 and 9. Now to the unmarried and the widows, context widowers, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Here's a word to young adults those people who are marrying age, who have finished school, college students who have finished school, they started their career, young adults, whatever, how you term young adults, here's a word to widows and widowers, and here's a word to divorced people. If you can remain single, Paul says, like I am, remain single. But God didn't make most of us like the Apostle Paul. Right? He didn't make most of us like him. He made us to be in relationship with people. Some people have the gift of disease, but some people don't. So the context I read right here is very practical. If I'm a young person, there's a lot of ifs here, and listen to all the ifs. If I'm a young person, and if there is a pool of young people that I'm interested in, and if I begin to date a number of these people, I should not prolong marriage. I should get married. I should get married. And yet we have young adults today who are prolonging marriage. Every year they prolong it longer and longer and they use all kinds of excuses and reasons. Hey, I haven't found the perfect mate. When you got married, did you find the perfect mate? You soon discovered that your mate wasn't perfect. Isn't that true? Come on, amen. I've got a list of ten items and they only fill eight of the ten items. They don't fulfill all ten. You're not going to find a person that fulfills all ten items. If you're a young adult, do not prolong marriage. If you're a widow or a widower, and you're happy and you're content with that, or you're a diverse person, and you don't have to be married, that's wonderful. But if you're like the average person, you're a widow or a widower, don't use all those excuses to say, well, I don't want to get married because I have to train. I have to train another spouse. Come on now. Or, 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 financially, I can't afford to get married because I'll lose this. What is the word of God saying right here? It says, if you want to, <laughs> if you don't want to be sexually tempted, if you don't want to burn a Burma passion, it says, get married. This is God's way of providing your sexual fulfillment in a marital relationship, you understand what I'm trying to say? This is a message that you need to tell your young adult grandchildren. It is better for them to get married than to burn and to cohabitate together and to live together and to get, uh, to get a girl pregnant. Amen? This is a message. And yet, in all world today, People are prolonging marriage more than ever because they say, I've got to get my career. Or they say, I've got to find the perfect person. Isn't it it amazing? When you get married, if you have experienced, like I've experienced it, my love for my wife is deeper. I love her more today than I've ever loved her before. But it's because we committed ourselves to one another and we've had to work through all kinds of problems. So you tell those young adults around you, don't prolong marriage. Don't prolong it. God has a natural order of things and when you prolong it, you're just asking for all kinds of problems in life. You say, Pastor Ron, what if you marry the wrong person? Well, <laughs> it's true, but, but you're not going to find the perfect person. That's, that's my point. If they're committed to Jesus Christ, if they're committed to Christ, and if they have a, if they have the same kind of belief that you have, and if there's a pool of people, marry them, get married. Let's go on here. Let's go back to one Corinthians chapter five. So here we have here we have a Christian brother, we have a member of the church who is living with his stepmother. Most scholars believe and most likely, some way, uh, it, 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 obviously, it's wrong. And the Corinthian church is not only condoning it, but they're really happy about it. And Paul, in essence, says that they should be grieved about it. It says, the man is destroying himself by this behavior. And in verse 2, we read, the second part, look at it with me, look at the second part. He says, and they're proud, they shouldn't, shouldn't have been filled with grief and have put, put him out of fellowship?" The man who did this now drop down to verse nine. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Verse eleven. But I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who called himself a brother, but is sexually immoral immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler, with such a man do not even eat. Now look at verse twelve. What business is it, uh, is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not judging those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel, notice he uses the word, expel the wicked man from among you. Paul says you should have dealt with this. You should have dealt with this man. You should have confronted him, talked to him. If you didn't change his ways, he should have, you should have asked him uh, to leave the church. How do you do this? How do you do this? this is a, did you know that this is a difficult, difficult thing to do? Did you know that I've never had to do, do, do this in all my 30 years of ministry? Why? Because typically when a person is involved in some sort of willful sin, they leave the church on their own. They leave the church on their own. But it doesn't mean, even if they leave the church, that we don't have responsibility to talk to them, which I've had to talk to people before about the things that they were involved in. How do you do it? How do you talk with people, a brother or sister in Christ, who are in blatant sin, carefully, humbly, with an attitude of love and care, and, and sacrificially? You have to sacrifice yourself. You have to stretch out your heart, so to speak, Years ago, I I read in the summer of 1989, there was a fellow by the name of Mark Wellman. And Mark Wellman is a paraplegic and he gained national recognition for climbing, as a paraplegic, national recognition for climbing the face of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. On the seventh and final day of his climb, the headlines in the Fresno B read, Showing a Will of Granite. Now, the accompanying headline, there was a photo of Willman being carried on the shoulders of his climbing companion, Mike Corbett. A subtitle said, Paraplegic and partner, prove no walls are too high to scale. Now, you know what? What a peop- lot of people didn't realize, unless they read the five print of the article, is that when Mark Wellman went up one time, this friend of his who helped him up went up a total of three times up the face of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park to get his friend up one time. When you you wound people with the truth and you confront them and you talk to them and in a moment we're going to talk about guidelines but when you do this often you are wounded back because you put yourself in a very, very difficult position where people often don't understand and they don't appreciate the fact that you're talking to them. It's true. I've been there. So what are we to do, Pastor Ron? Before we actually go and talk with this person, there are, there are a number of things. These are on your, this is in your message notes this morning. Number one, first of all, we, we have to examine our own hearts. We, we have to see that there's no sin in our own lives. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 5. He says, you have to take the plank out of your own eye before you take the speck of dust out of, you, out of another brother's eye. Another translation says, a modern translation, you have to take the telephone pole telephone pole out of your own eye before you take the speck of dust out of somebody else's eye. You have to make sure there's no willful sin in your life before you go and talk to somebody Often this prevents us from talking to other people because there are sins in our lives that are unconfessed. And so we have to examine ourselves with scrutiny and say, Lord, if there's anything in my life, let me get right with you and I want to confess it. The second thing that I see from Scripture is that we have to make sure we have a loving and humble spirit. A loving, humble spirit. Not a haughty, Better than you looking down your nose kind of spirit at the person. And number three, we have to make sure, we have to make sure that the so called willful sin that we feel like the person is in is actually a biblical white and black sin, not, not a uh, cultural sin traditional, social, politically correct, or idiosyncratic interpretation of Scripture. You say, Pastor Ron, what are you talking about? Well, if we were to jump ahead, and you don't have to, but if we were to jump ahead to chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, we see that the Apostle Paul says, women wear head coverings. Do you see anybody in our church wearing head coverings this morning? No. We understand the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, and in that particular culture, a woman that did not wear a head covering was considered loose and immoral. Loose and immoral. And so, we would not confront a person for not wearing a head covering in today's world. We wouldn't say that's a black and white sin. So you have to make sure it's a black and white sin. It's not just a cultural interpretation, some sort of society interpretation. In fact, I want to say that by and large, most dress issues, neckties, wedding rings, pants, or dresses, hair length and styles, makeup or the lack of it, fall in the category of cultural idioms and not black and white sins. And yet there was a number of times years ago, even in the Church of the Nazarene, that if a man wore a wedding ring, he was considered a not-so-right-on Christian. Years ago. And I got a taste of this in Missoula, Montana, in our first pastorate, when we met some very, very conservative 7th day Adventist folks, and they were not wearing wedding rings because they considered it External adornment. We're not talking about cultural idioms. We're talking about black and white issues here. You know it's a sin, it's a sin, it's a sin. Number four, make sure that the person who is in this sin is a believer and a member of the church. Is a believer and a member of the church. I want you to go back to First Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want you to look at verses 9 through 11 one more time with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and the swimmers and the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or or an idolater or slander, a drunkard or a swimmer With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? I don't have the right to punch the lights out of a wholesale stranger. He's only talking about people that I have a relationship with. He's only talking about people that profess. Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, and people who are a part of the church, not wholesale strangers. So we have to make sure that the person is a believer, a member of the church, before we can even talk to them. And number five, or a member of your family, perhaps. Number five, you, you have an intimate relationship with them. Number five, Jesus, I believe, indicates, according to Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17 that we are to go to a person face-to-face and individually we are to go to the person face-to-face and individually and talk to them. And if after several visits with other concerned church members there is still no repentance, Jesus says, we are to leave them. We are to leave them. Leave them alone. Now I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul says again in the second part of verse 13. God will judge those outside, but talking about people inside the church, expel the wicked man from among you." It means to remove. It means to remove. It means to distance ourselves from them. Oh, Pastor on. Pastor on Pastor Ron, this is so harsh. This is so medieval. This is so Old Testament. Why would you go to these extremes What's the purpose? What's the intention? Do you just want to show the person who the boss is? Do you just want to have some sort of authority over them? Do you just want to keep the church pure and white? No. None of these things. None of these things. We read, mark it down, it's not in your message notes, but we read later on, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 6 through 9 either this man or another man that was disciplined by the church for other reasons they talked to him they confronted him he would not repent he would not change and they removed the hand of fellowship and Paul says He is back among you. And praise God, my paraphrase, because He has repented. He has seen the errors of His way. And that's the goal. You want a person to see that what they're doing is not right and for them to get out of it and to come back into fellowship. And Paul says, Receive the brother in forgiveness and with open arms and love on him. I paraphrase. I want to close um, with a story I read a number of years ago and I think this brings us home to what we're talking about. Roger Storms, Roger Storms, who is the pastor of the first Christian church in Chandler, Arizona, tells this story. This is a story he tells. One Sunday, a car had broken down in the alley behind our church facility. And the driver jacked up the car in response and he crawled underneath the car. Suddenly, we heard him scream because the jack fell out and here the guy is pinned underneath his automobile. And someone shouted, Hey, call 911. There's a guy that's stuck underneath his car. And a couple people ran to the phone. Several of our men he he writes, gathered around the large car and strained to lift it off of this trapped man. And nurses were rounded up very quickly and they went out to this man. And with all of them in there, they were able to lift the car and they were able to pull the man out and after the nurses attended him and stuff, found out that he just had bruising and minor scratches. Otherwise, he was okay. And this is what Pastor Chandler writes. When this man was in peril, people did all they could do to help him. Risking themselves, inconveniencing themselves, whatever was necessary to save this man, they were ready to try. He writes, How we need the same attitude when it comes to rescuing those in greatest peril from the danger of losing their souls, the danger of losing out on eternal life. It's messy business. I don't like it. I've never liked it. I've always hated this part of being a pastor. Being in church leadership. It's messy. But what's the alternative? When you don't step forward, in essence, you're saying, I don't really care about you. I don't really love you. What you're doing is fine. May God help us to continue. When needed to exercise church discipline with the right motives, in the right heart, and in the right way. Would you bow your heads with me, please, in this prayer together?